It's Tuesday, July 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The country that has been running the most sustained and effective counterintelligence operation against the United States for the last 10 years without trying is Mali. No, it's not China or Russia. Those guys have been trying. But Mali, without asking or wanting, regularly is briefed about U.S. military operations, logistics, personnel movements, including the whereabouts of generals. And the reason is one simple thing. The international domain suffix for Mali is ML. For the U.S. military, it's M-I-L. And while the U.S. military tries to teach sacrifice and selflessness, there is no I in team and all that, there is an I in mill. And if you don't type it, your email goes to Mali. Well, actually, there is a hero, a hero who will save us, us meaning the U.S., from the collateral damage of the military's shoot-off emails, ask questions later approach. His name is Johannes Zerbier, possibly Zerbier. Z-U-U-R-B-I-E-R, no I in team, to use in Zerbier. Zerbier, managing director of the Amsterdam-based Mali Dilly, has come across, according to a report in the Financial Times, U.S. military x-rays and medical data identifying document information, crew lists for ships, staff lists at bases, maps of installations, photos of bases, inspection reports, contracts, criminal complaints against personnel, internal investigations, official travel itineraries, tax and financial records, and my favorite, updates from defense contractor General Dynamics related to the production of grenade training cartridges to the Army. He caught 117,000 misdirected emails sent by the American military to the servers that Molly Dilly maintains. So this one brave Dutchman, put his fingers in the dike of a flood of mistaken electronic missives. He has done his job until now, because the Molly Dilly contract is up on Monday. What's the Molly Dillio with all of this? Well, Molly's a dictatorship. It's aligned with Russia. It's a huge client of the Wagner Group. It's not great. One thing, if the island nation of Comoros gets all the correspondence sent to .com, but this Molly thing is a dilly of a pickle. Read more at MikePesca.com, not MikePesca.co. That is a local Bogota, Colombia fishing broadcast. I assume I've been getting his email for years. On the show today, mass shootings are up, a terrible but unrepresentative development. But first, David Grand's recent best-selling book, The Wager, tells a tale of survival in the age of wooden ships. But it tells another story, too, a story that I was very interested in, about the nature of truth. David Grant up next. David Grant's new book, The Wager, is subtitled A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Now, this isn't the first book written about this case. In fact, there was one written a few years ago. Its title was A Voyage to the South Seas in the year 1740 to 1741. I will now read you the subtitle of that book by one of the sailors involved in that voyage. Subtitle was back then, 
A faithful narrative of the loss of His Majesty's ship, the wager on a desolate island in the latitude 47 south, longitude 8140 west, with the proceedings and conduct of the officers and crew and the hardships they endured in the said island for the space of five months, their bold attempt for liberty in coasting the southern part of the vast region of Patagonia, setting out with upwards of 80 souls in their boats, the loss of the cutter, their passage through the Straits of Magellan on account of... And then there's an ellipsis. I don't know why. The incredible <laughs> hardships they frequently underwent for want of food of any kind. David Grant, welcome to the gist. And after reading the subtitle of that account, is there really anything to add? <laughs> <laughs> you know what is so funny is um, so the, all the the accounts from the you know early 18th century when they were written. That was kind of the way they would promote them with these endlessly long subtitles. And so when I first wrote my book, I actually was like. You know, because I was like, well, I re- it'd be really cool to have a subtitle that was like mimic the times. And so I actually had this like endlessly long subtitle. And then I thought maybe I could do it. And like it just it made no sense to a modern reader. But I just found those <laughs> I found those subtitles absolutely hysterical. <laughs> so what about the story first compelled you? How'd you come across it? So I had finished Killers of the Flower Moon and I was looking for a new book project and I didn't really know where to begin, but I, one of the subjects that had always interested me was mutinies. There's kind of very peculiar, specific kind of rebellion that takes place within a state organization that is meant to impose order. So it's kind of an unusual rebellion. In any case, I was doing lots of research and I somehow stumbled upon a digital scan copy of an eyewitness account by John Byron, who had been the midshipman on the wager uh, when it set off. Uh, He, of course, later would go on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose poetry, Don Juan, is greatly influenced by what he referred to as my granddad's narrative. Um, And I I must confess that when I started looking at this journal, it was written in this very antiquated tangled prose, not unlike the subtitle you just read. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it had the the S's were printed as F's. And I thought, this is kind of tedious or whatnot. But then, you know, I just kept pausing over these kind of crazy descriptions. He referred to the hurricane. Uh, he, he called it the, the the perfect hurricane around Cape Horn and the shipwreck and the scurvy. And he described cannibalism, which he referred to as that last extremity. So that was the first thing that got its hooks into me. I realized that it held the clues to one of the kind of more extraordinary sagas of survival and mayhem and resilience, and also a real study of, of human nature that, that intrigued me. Um, but I would say the thing that finally kind of closed the circle and, and compelled me to, to want to write this book is that is when I learned that some of the survivors had made it back to England, and after everything they've been through, they're summoned to face this court-martial for their alleged crimes on the island when they're shipwrecked. And so they begin to release their testimony, and it mm-hmm. sparks this crazy war over the truth. And so I was going, you know, I never expected to end up in the 18th century. And then I would go to these archives, and I'd be reading about disinformation and misinformation and alleged fake journals. And of course, I'd then come home and be reading about disinformation in our times and misinformation and and uh, so-called fake news. And so the more I dug into it, the more the story just felt like it had this weird resonance with today and, and almost a kind of parable for our time. So was a swashbuckling tale or horror story or right. human nature, but it had these other elements. So that was what finally made me take the plunge and spend five years of my life on it. And I don't, I'm not familiar with all your work, but I've read some of it and Killers yeah. of the Flower Moon. I think you are attracted, you hinted at this when you talked about how compelled you were by mutiny, of the interplay between order and disorder. 
And that's going on here many ways that people are doing whatever they can to survive the elements and each other. And then boom, they come smack into the imposition of order or the idea of what um, order imposed on them by some institution might be if that institution still had hold. And then lo and behold, in this case, it does. They're uh, judged by the admiralty. So I think that, well, you tell me. Yeah, Do a self-analysis. Does yeah, that compel you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I, I probably would need uh, s- some psychiatrists to self-analyze me. <laughs> but I, I, do think, I do think you're honest. I mean, that, you know, I'm very, I was fascinated by this idea that these ships were these floating civilizations with kind of regimented and order and hierarchy and class structure. Um, and they're they're really like these like almost like floating earths, like you know, you know, in a way. And and then when the ship gets shipwrecked on this desolate island, that order begins to break down. And the island becomes this kind of unbelievably laboratory that will kind of expose and test the human condition under those circumstances and, and, and raise a question of, you know, what happens when that order breaks down? What will humans do? How will they behave? Um, and what will they do to survive? And also there's even attempts for them to kind of create order on the island and then that ultimately fails. But I found that really interesting too, you know, that they're, they're still, you know, when people steal food, they have tri- trials, these kind of kangaroos courts. And um, so, yeah, I just sort of raised and it lets you study. And, you know, sometimes it's in these extreme circumstances where you get to study these these fundamental questions about nature and what happens when order breaks down and how will humans behave. And I will just say to to, to your question, you know, which I think or your observation, which is a good one is, you know, one of the things that, that draws me to it and, and I, you know, would never assume to know the answer is I think this story raises the question which is why I think sometimes stories from the past can still resonate, is you have to ask yourself, who would you have been on that island? Right. And I don't know who I would have been on that right. island. I don't know. Um, also, Tales of Order and Disorder, uh, Tales in the Jungle and Against the Elements, Lost City of Z, which is a former, uh, which is a book that you wrote, has this. It reminds me of William Golding. It reminds me of Werner Herzog, because they're using these elements of the primal to get at questions of the human and humanity. And so you seem like a, a literary Werner Herzog in that way. Well, that's very kind of you to say, because I love all them. And, 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 you know, Lord of the Flies was obviously very much on my mind when I was writing this book. I mean, there's even, you know, there's a chapter called The Beast and um, in The yes. Wager. And, you know, the, there's this animal out there, is it real or not real? And is the beast really inside of them or outside of them? And, you know, the echoes with Lord of the Flies is just crazy. But this is obviously a true story in the 18th century. Let's do a little, and I don't want to task you with too much of this. I've listened to a bunch of interviews you've done, and as much as every host says, we're not just going to have you tell the story. It's very hard not to. (laughs) The common question that you're asked is, and then what? But (laughs) let's lay the predicate of uh, this journey and trying to get the men to staff these ships from prisons and from wherever they could. And what was the task at hand when they set sail from England. Yeah, so I mean the objective is a war breaks out with Spain, uh, 1739, Great Britain against its imperial rival, and they're given this task of being part, the men of the wager are part of a, a squadron of ships, of warships, that are being going to be sent on this secret mission to try to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure. The ship was known as the prize of all the oceans. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it's kind of crazy that that was part of the mission. I was kind of a piratical element under the veneer of uh, of statehood, right? Uh, and, and as you say, you know, 
the way they man these ships is just kind of nuts because there's, you know, they come, people come from all walks of life on these ships. So that interests me. Obviously, no women, but, uh, you know, at that time period, it's very patriarchal. But, but you have boys and uh, who are like six and men who the, the cook on the wager is in his 80s and you have aristocrats and dandies and city paupers and free blacks. I mean, you have them all. <laughs> Literally but, a dandy. Yeah, a dandy. But they're also short men. And, and so, you know, they go and they uh, send out these press gangs and they just start rounding up anyone who looks like a mariner. And the craziest part is always when they go to this retirement. Press home. gangs, by the way, are, uh, I guess you would say, very committed recruiters. Very committed recruiters, yes. Usually with, with, with armed, uh, armed committed recruiters who will yeah. basically look at you and say, oh, you got a little tar on your fingertips. That means you worked on a ship because tar was used on a ship. Grab this guy. And, you know, could you imagine you're just walking down the street or you just got back from maybe a two-year voyage from 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 Asia and then you're just thrown onto this voyage and you you don't even get to say goodbye to your family. Um, and, and, and then the craziest part is they then go to this retirement home. I mean, that part, this pensioner home, and they start just plucking out soldiers and sailors, sailors who are in their 60s and 70s and many are missing an assortment of limbs. There's one guy who hops off. He tries to flee on one leg. Um, and some of them are so sick, they're hoisted on these uh, stretchers onto these ships. So that that was the mission. But I, I, I talk a little bit about the the kind of the way these things were recruited because, you know, like with a lot of wars, it, you know, it was indicative of, you know, there's this great clamor for war, as there often is. And yet they're very poorly thought out often and people don't actually want to spend the resources and often people are sent off to die. And in many ways, the seeds of destruction were planted at the very outset of the voyage. So the ship had, this very ship had uh, sailed around Cape Horn. It is possible. It is, it was not a fait accompli that they would wreck. So when they leave, they probably say to themselves, there is, there is some chance of that. It's not a likelihood. But what did you come to conclude about the chances of success of their journey? Yeah, I mean, it, it was enormously challenging under any circumstances. Um, those seas are so rough. And, you know, most listeners probably have some vague idea. I did before I began research. Um, you know, I was like, oh, those are, why is the seas are bad there? But it's always interesting in research is you actually start to figure out like why <laughs> you start to answer the kind of fun because you're just like, oh, why would the seas be so rough there? And and it is because there's this kind of these geographical phenomenon, like where the seas travel around the earth for 1300 miles, never being blocked by land. So they hit Cape Horn just with full force. And, you know, they have these 90-foot waves that can dwarf a mass and these incredible winds that can accelerate to 200 miles per hour. Um, Melville, and I've said this before, but I I just loved his description. Herman Melville compared it to a descent into hell uh, in Dante's Inferno, and he later made it around the horn. So very few people got around the horn. It was such a frightening place that the Spanish, who kind of conquered parts of uh, Latin America uh, earlier, had decided rather than to try to bring their cargo around Cape Horn, they would sail to Panama and take their cargo and haul it across the jungle. Many of them would die of malaria and yellow fever and then load it onto ships on the Pacific side. They thought that was better than going around Cape Horn. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the threats were enormous. And then there was just this added element, which was disease. You know, it's like a confluence of horrors. So you had these incredible seas and at a very moment when they're gonna need everybody, they're dying left and right because of scurvy. 
you know, I can't, could you imagine they're in these, you know, 90 foot waves, the ships are breaking apart. And meanwhile, their hair is falling out and their teeth is falling out. And, and the disease is getting into the brain, as one seaman says, and they're running raving mad. Uh, you know, one person is howling so much, they have to basically shackle him. You know, he's going so mad. So, yeah. It was, um, I don't know what, I can't put percentages on these things. I don't, I don't bet, so I don't know what over-unders are, but yeah. this was, whatever it was, it was the bad side of it. But suffice <laughs> it to say, if the year was 1740, you'd be scrubbing your fingers of tar so as not to raise the susp- suspicions of the press gangs. Yes, you would be running and hiding and putting a wig on and, and scurrying away. So as you love research, you uh, enjoy finding out all these facts and this material, but this is a story that breaks off as the ships break apart into subsets and mutinies and sub-mutinies and this party's on the island and that party's on the ship and the third party has abandoned the fourth party. At some point, did it get frustrating to you? Like, okay, whereas I need to have a clear narrative, a, a character I stick with, or at least a through line to orient the both myself and the reader? Yeah, I mean, it is always such a struggle when you do research and you're trying to tell a story and a story is always sweeping and it has so many threads. And it can be completely bewildering. And usually with my books, I'm almost in a state of paralysis until I answer that question, which you just, you know, which you mentioned was like, what is the structure for this? Because I really want these stories to be intimate, if at all possible. You know, I don't want these just to be a recitation of facts. I want you to be with the people who experienced. And so ultimately what I decided with this tale was to tell it from the point of view largely from the point of view of three people who are on the wager. And therefore, you're kind of following them. And that helps you kind of hone the research, but also keep the story rooted in human experience. So it's not abstract. It's not too distant. And so you can't really move away from them. It's sometimes challenging. um, And so information kind of has to come through their perspective. Right. But those men... There's the captain, David Cheap. He was uh, forced into being the captain along the journey. Of course, you'd follow him. He was the main character. And then there was Bulkley. Yeah, Bulkley. I believe you pronounce it. Yeah, Bulkley, who was also a main character, but must have been very compelling for you because he wrote it down. And you didn't just, it wasn't just a writer-to-writer respect. He was a good writer and he a was, different kind of writer. That yes. must have been a gift. That was a gift. I mean, yes. And and part of, you know, when you're trying to answer that riddle of, of structure, you're, you're not just answering it like the way one might write a novel and say, oh, these would be the best uh, people. You've also, there are real pragmatic concerns and constraints, which is who left me the materials, <laughs> how, you know, who told the story, who who, who wrote down materials that I can actually uh, tell the story from. And so Bulkley was a gift because he's such an interesting figure. You know, he, 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 he didn't come from the aristocracy. He was the gunner on the wager. Um, he, because he didn't come from the aristocracy, he knew he could never become commander of his own ship. He was incredibly literate uh, for somebody who came from the lower to middle class. He was a compulsive diarist and writer. And he wrote, unlike, uh, we talked a little bit about Byron's account. Byron came from the aristocracy. Bulkley wrote, writes like a modern writer. I mean, it's just this direct, clean, what he called, I think he called it a maritime style. <laughs> but he just writes like a straight, you know, there's no extra adverbs. Um, and uh you know, but what's so interesting about him is, yeah, he writes everything down, and then suddenly he finds himself on this island after the shipwreck, 
And the question arises, could he emerge as a commander in his own right now that he's no longer on a ship? Yeah. And at some point, as different characters would be unaware of the fates of other characters, as we, the readers, would be. Yes. And then you had to make the choice when to orient us and when to backfill. Oh, my God, these guys showed up and they weren't dead or some of them weren't dead. Um, Was there a rule of thumb about how to do that? Yes. I mean, you you know, well, I was shifting perspective. So the challenge was, when did I shift uh, perspective? So there's a period where um, certain people are missing. Some of the castaways are missing. And there is this kind of crazy quality of almost like a, a Victorian novel where like somebody just shows up after six years and like, oh my God, he's alive. They don't yeah. even know what they look like anymore. Uh, and that keeps happening in the story. So, but, you know, for the most part, you're kind of following chronological, um, you know, in a weird way, part of always the secret to me is chronological, but you would, there was a certain challenge and, you know, you want to build suspense to some degree. And so you would shift perspective um, when that person wouldn't know certain information um, I guess the rule of thumb, I'm really not giving you a very clear answer to this. My, my rule of thumb is I never want to withhold information that the people I'm writing about would know. Mm-hmm. So, because that feels manipulative. It's like when you read a mystery and like suddenly, like, oh, well, you never told me that. that it's right. like, oh, they were or holding the po- gun and, uh, you know. Or a podcast yeah, about yeah, murder, so, which is like so, the ba- basic yeah. way of doing it. These yeah, days, so I have so. a kind of philosophy that... I stick with the people I'm writing about and whatever knowledge they have is when the reader will learn that knowledge. So I guess that's a, a complicated way to answer your question. That's David Grant, author of The Wager. And tomorrow we're going to return to this conversation. We're going to talk about the relationship between narrative and truth and how David Grant defines things and how he navigates it, hopefully better than the crew of The Wager. That is tomorrow. Enjoy this sea shanty. And now the spiel. The accounting of death after the Labor Day weekend was stark and troubling, CBS reporting. Today is the 150th day of 2023. So far this year, there have been 263 mass shootings reported in the United States. 327 victims have been killed in those incidents. Both those figures are the highest ever recorded this early in a year. A month later, MSNBC noted a similar development post the July 4th weekend. America has a fatal attraction with guns. Just look at these sobering, sad, and very stark statistics. Over the past 4th of July holiday weekend, at least 22 mass shootings across 17 states were recorded, according to the Gun Violence Archive. At least 20 people were killed and 102 people were injured during the onslaught of violence. At the current pace, 2023 is set to be a record-setting year for mass shootings, shattering the previous record set only two years ago. It's all true. It all bears noting. I'm glad they're reporting on it. But it's also misleading. The whys are pretty intriguing. Of course, in America, we have a terrible gun problem. We also have a pretty bad problem in getting accurate statistics, especially accurate statistics quickly. It might take a year for the CDC to tell us that murders rose to 26,000 in 2021. 
better at counting things, the big, bad blasts, is the GVA, the Gun Violence Archive. Mass shootings get coverage. They usually get written up in local papers or covered on the TV, and therefore the GVA can keep a list of them. And they do, and I'm grateful that they do. There's no agreed-upon definition of mass shootings. They say it's any shooting where four or more people are shot, not necessarily killed. But also, there's no direct correlation to the overall rate of gun crime and the specific crime of mass shooting. And so, though these stats are accurate, mass shootings represent something like 1% of the overall murders. And it is not, as I said, a representative 1%. So the big headline in 2023 is not what you just heard. It seems hard to turn away from that. It seems maybe ignorant or whistling past the graveyard or, I don't know, doing the NRA's bidding for it if you say that's not the most important thing. But I think of the mass murder or mass shooting stat more of mm, something like the drunk looking for his keys under the street lamp, even though he lost them in the darkness. Jeff Asher of Crime Analytics has published data, and he wrote an article for The Atlantic pretty authoritatively showing that murders overall, all kinds of murders, are down about 12% in America. This is mostly drawn from the largest 90 cities, but that turns out to be accurate for America overall. Now, to be clear, murder rose so much from 2019 to 2020. As far as we know, the biggest one-year rise in the 100 years since they've been keeping accurate murder stats, that even with a 12% decline from last year to this, especially if that holds up, we are in a quite different world than we were during the bulk of the Obama years and even the Trump years, the early Trump years. Take Philadelphia. Philadelphia never exceeded 400 homicides this century. During the crack wars of the 90s, they did, but not this century. And then they hit, they went from 300-something to 499 in the year 2020 and over 500 the last two years. But in 2023 to date, remember, the year is more than halfway over, Philadelphia is at 232 homicides. So that is historically, you know, not counting the last three years, really bad. But counting the last three years, it shows progress. It's quote-unquote good news, or at least a positive trend, unlike the mass shooting story, of which there was a big one in Philadelphia, and that got a lot of coverage. Jed Legum, who writes a popular substack from a progressive angle, focuses his explanation on the lack of coverage as a general bias towards bad news. I think that's true. But as murder rates were rising, back in 2021, he was writing articles that murder rates weren't as bad as they were 30 years ago, and he was dismissing the notion that calls to defund the police had any effect on the crime rate. I don't mean to pick on Judd. His, he, he puts together better charts, and he's more faithful to empirical data than, than many who share his point of view or his explanations for why crime didn't really rise except for homicides and why that did rise. Judd doesn't take into account that nowhere else in the Western world did crime rise or murder rise nearly to the extent that it did in the United States. He does point to the fact that gun purchases rose, but there is no definitive correlation between the gun purchases in any year and the gun crime in that year. Overall, I think the explanation, which Judd and others of his ilk say is hard to parse out from the underlying sociology, I think it's all wrong. And I think that 
a very Occam's razor, clear explanation is out there. Some people are pointing to it, and I'm going to do that here. From 2019 to 2020, the biggest change in society was a massive pullback in policing. It doesn't matter that most of the calls to defund the police went technically unheeded if you just did an accounting of police budgets. What really happened was that police were told that they were oppressing most of America and police as human beings and perhaps even as flawed human beings policed less. And it wasn't just the efforts of sworn officers. It was the fact that so many police quit en masse and those that didn't knew they were being scrutinized, and some perhaps chose to punish the very communities they were sworn to defend. Radley Balco, who is a libertarian and generally anti-over-policing, let's just say, author, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times looking at Golden Valley, Minnesota. And his premise was there's a lot of coverage of the high crime rates and high spike in murder rates in cities where police quit en masse. Portland being an excellent example of it, and so, of course, was Minneapolis, St. Paul as well. But in Minneapolis, there were 48 homicides in 2019 that went up to 85 in 2020 and 93 in 2021. Radley Balco says, well, look at Golden Valley. They lost police officers too, and murder didn't spike. He's right. Murder went from zero to zero because Golden Valley is not the kind of place with a lot of murders or any murders. It was, to me, unbelievably telling that his counterpoint to dozens of bodies and dozens of more bodies than would have existed in the pre-police pullback era, his counterpoint was to find a city where murder and murder rates are just not a thing, are just not applicable. He sort of damned himself, that's the best example you could come up with. And talking about mass shootings being on the rise... It doesn't mark us as an unserious people. I think the motivations for looking at that stat and wringing one's hands over it are very human motivations. But I also think, as I have laid out in this spiel, that they're not the most telling statistic to understand where America is going. I don't think that we're a cruel or wholly ignorant people. I wouldn't say we're an unserious people. That's usually a charge that's lobbed when we distract ourselves with entertainment And certainly reports about mass shootings going up is not at all entertaining, but I think we're a distracted people and we're unable to grapple with facts that to me are apparent, trends that are clear and explanations that might, for some of us, go against our prior assumptions. One year we had an uneasy relationship with police and every once in a while there was a headline example of over-policing that we worried about. And then the next year, it became the biggest national issue. Police became some of the worst villains in a society that was overwhelmed by circumstance and human nature, or just the logical reaction to the message that society was giving being what it is. There was less policing, and less policing led to crime. A lot more of the worst type of crime. So it's good right now that we're pulling back from the bad policies, the bad sentiment, and the atmosphere where policing was first seen as oppression and second seen as protection.
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces the gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the chief roofing officer of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Jeepuru, Dupuru, and thanks for listening. Listening.